What I began to notice in the early 90s was it was as if there was a political vacuum because although I was the president of a heritage society, people were coming to me for an approach to what were essentially political problems. They tended to be development issues and so on. They tended to be community preservation. But there was very obviously a profound political vacuum. You're listening to On the Record Offscript. This summer, we've been taking a break from our usual documentary-style format for this podcast and have been sharing some of the more interesting long-form interviews on our summer episodes. This week, we share our interview with Michelle Raymond, who is a former NDP MLA for the writing of Halifax Atlantic, where she served from 2003 to 2013. In an earlier episode, when we shared Graham Steele's extended interview, I actually misspoke and said that he was the former MLA for Halifax Atlantic. He was actually the MLA for Halifax Fairview during roughly the same period as Michelle Raymond. Michelle had a relatively low profile during her career as an MLA. She served on the back benches of the NDP government, but she had plenty of strongly stated and eloquently delivered thoughts on the state of politics and the life of an MLA, which she shared during this interview. Some of the things she chatted about in her interview with me included what it means to be an unmanageable candidate and why she wished she'd been more of one, the wealth of information and access available to MLAs should they choose to use it, and the false flag of privacy concerns that she says are more often used to protect the privacy of failing government agencies than the individuals they're supposed to be serving. Here's my interview with Michelle Raymond. Tell me about your life and work before you entered politics. Okay. Well, how should I say this? Okay. I have lived in Nova Scotia since I was five years old. My parents were not Nova Scotians. My mother was from Bermuda and my father was from Massachusetts. So they had experience of Nova Scotia without being Nova Scotians. And lived here, was educated here, went away to university, came back studied law, ended up actually not practicing or articling even, raised children, became involved in or actually began a couple of volunteer projects. And I think those were probably the reasons that I was approached to run for the NDP. I'd been working as a freelance editor and I had also... The area where I was living in in Spryfield, this was back in the late 80s, early 90s, was a a formerly rural area that was really coming into the urban shadow. And so while people had had flocks of chickens and ducks and it was an old farming community, Mm -hmm. there was less and less access to affordable, decent food. There was kind of one grocery store and six fast foods. And so I thought that perhaps it would be an idea to set up community education in food production on one of the old farm sites. So I started asking people whether they thought an urban farm museum would be a good idea, and I was very fortunate that people came along with it, and it's now soon to be in its 20th year of operation, actually, which is really, really, really great. The Urban Farm Museum Society of Spryfield, and it's been fabulous. But people used to laugh at me. You know, I was the farm lady because I was, you know, going to farm museum conferences. I mean, these none of these were urban farm museums. They were all sort of lots of cows and pigs and so on, and they would produce food, and it would just be a byproduct. So I had gotten used to being laughed at, maybe, <laughs> a while before I went into politics. <laughs> and um, so that was your career? That was, it was a volunteer thing, but it was a career. My actual bread and butter was uh, working as an editor, as a freelance editor, okay. and for newspapers and wire service and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's really what I had been doing. And, and was that work itself political? 
Well, interesting. I would not have said so. But the other thing I did, I have always been very interested in Nova Scotia's historic values. So I had been involved with the Heritage Trust. I had spoken on various development projects and so on. And I ended up at one point as the president, uh, well, not didn't end up, but I was the president of the Mainland South Heritage Society, which basically covers the western Chibokto Peninsula, that whole Spryfield, Sambro, all these communities that have now been drawn into the regional municipality. This was before that time. And what I began to notice in the early 90s was it was as if there was a political vacuum, because although I was the president of a heritage society, people were coming to me for an approach to what were essentially political problems. They tended to be development issues and so on. They tended to be community preservation. But there was very obviously a profound political vacuum. There are always values that are predominate at any given time. And heritage and historic value and so on were had been quite important for some time. And I think it was sort of giving way perhaps to a greater emphasis on, you know, environmental sustainability and so on. But people began coming to me, I guess, is what I would say. You know, not in a way that you would have expected as president of heritage society. And a lot of that really did color my experience because, as an example, one of the things that I was involved with, there was a development project on the Northwest Arm, which was proposed for large condominiums or a series of condominiums on a little piece of undeveloped land, which was called Dead Man's Island. So the question is, why is it called Dead Man's Island? Well, okay, people remembered that bones had been turned up. Bones were turned up because people had been buried there. Well, who were they? And one of the most exciting experiences of my life, in many ways, was actually going to the archives and transcribing the lists of the names of the people who were buried there, who turned out to be French and Spanish and American soldiers and sailors from the Napoleonic Wars and the Wars of 1812, who had died in the prison hospital on Melville Island and been buried in unmarked graves and whose families had never known what became of them. Although the city of Halifax had said, no, this is a piece of land of no importance, when the U.S. Congress and the French Senate wrote them letters and saying, this is a burial ground of our citizens, they thought it was important. And so that informed me in many ways because I began, I sort of was aware of this, but just thinking, you know, we so frequently overlook, particularly here in Nova Scotia, overlook things that are incredibly valuable to people in other parts of the world. Mm. And we're busy throwing out a lot of babies with the bathwater. Mm. So, I mean, that's my sense. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Uh, and so, at what point, you said, mentioned earlier, you were approached by the NDP uh, yep. to run, but before that, were you involved at all in partisan politics? No, I was not involved at all. Um, I was <laughs> shamefully unaware. <laughs> I don't know if I should tell this story, but one of the embarrassing moments is I was away at university. I came back in summertime, and I had been doing some work in theatrical productions, and I was interested in learning more about theater lighting. And a very kind lighting designer sort of took me on and spent a few days showing me something about running the boards there. And at one point in a break, I said to him, and so what do you do for your day job? And he said, well, I'm the leader of the provincial NDP. (laughs) That was Jeremy Ackerman. This was how little aware I was of the political circumstances, I'm afraid. <laughs> Terribly unaware. So <laughs> So what was the invitation to consider being a candidate like? Mm, it was a surprise. Uh, it really came out of left field. I had two major projects on the go at the time, and I couldn't even consider it. And I also thought... At that point, I was single. My husband and I had separated, so I had two young teenage daughters. 
and I was living with them. And I was very fortunate in living in a very close-knit community. And I was really afraid that I was going to lose friends and neighbors as friends and allies, and that this whole thing would, in fact, kind of bring me into disrepute. And so I initially said, no, I wouldn't. No, thank you very much. I did mention it to a friend who said, absolutely, you should do it. And I was surprised by that reaction, very surprised. So I, you know, I didn't really pursue it anymore. But when they came back to me a few months later and asked again, I said, well, okay, you know, I'll consider it. And so, I, and yeah, okay. This would have been 2002. So this was fall of 2002. Robert Chisholm had held the seat and he was retiring or resigning, whatever the case may be. And uh, they were looking for a candidate. And so I said, all right. And I sort of figured that process of being interviewed, you know, for suitability and so on would weed out any unsuitabilities that <laughs> they would all come to come to light. And they did, you know, decide to go ahead with this. And so, in fact, I was nominated. It was not a contested nomination. Probably it was not expected that I would win, in fact, because the conservative candidate was a sitting municipal councillor. And so there was, you know, it was a conservative provincial government and it was a sitting municipal councillor in the area who was running. So there was a significant amount of um, input. Yeah. And did you anticipate you would win? No. I think people have said that nobody looked as shocked as I did. <laughs> but my stepfather reminded me a couple of years ago that what I had said at the time was that I thought it might be a good occasion to get some ideas out in front. And I'd forgotten that that was really my, my reasoning. Because I did have concerns and still do have concerns about a number of issues. And so what were some of those issues at the time? Well, they were affordability of food. Absolutely. The affordability of healthy food. Huge problem. Lack of emphasis on practical education. You know, I had some real, uh, real concerns with sort of school board school board decisions and also some of the things that were missing from an education, from anybody's education. Just a lot of people who really haven't been able to fulfill their potential or hadn't been able to and haven't been able to fulfill their potential. It sometimes seems that there's a pretty brief window of opportunity in Nova Scotia for people to enter the working world and become ensconced. You know, I knew a lot of people of huge talent and ability who had never been able to have a career. Not necessarily for lack of education, either. I mean, there were sometimes people who were very well educated, but they just hadn't made it into that. But they had chosen to stay in Nova Scotia, and that was the big choice. And where did politics come into Where did politics come into that? Well, these were just ideas. These were things that I had concerns about. And, of course, I also had big concerns about what seemed at the time to be somewhat thoughtless patterns of development, that municipal development. From people I knew that it appeared that there was somewhat unhappy climate prevailing with, at that time, the new Halifax Regional Municipality and the component communities. And so that was a real problem as far as I was concerned, am concerned. So there were enough of these things, I think, that, that motivated me to mm-hmm. think, oh, well, at least I can, people listen to me for 30 days. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. so in the election campaign, how did mm-hmm. those 
concerns resonate with people? Well, uh, they seem to resonate well. They seem to resonate well. As I say, I was, quite honestly, I was surprised when I did win. And there were, you know, the campaign itself was something I had no previous experience. And, you know, to be very, very candid, one of the things that unnerved me at the beginning was the person who was my campaign manager arrived one day talking about somebody else as an unmanageable candidate. And I thought, oh no, am I going to be an unmanageable candidate? I must not be an unmanageable candidate. You know, I must be <laughs> decorous and well-behaved and compliant and all the rest of it. And I, and I was. <laughs> so, But there were, there were great moments. Campaigning is exhausting, but it is, in fact, a real privilege. And it's, you know, when people say that, it sounds corny, but it's a lot of fun. And Although, and when I say campaigning, I mean the classic sort of door-knocking thing, which maybe doesn't exist 12 years later. I just don't know. But it's quite something to, to knock on a door and not to be turned away as a complete stranger. And to have people talk quickly or for a long time about what matters to them. And that experience keeps on, you know, during your time as an MLA, but... It is remarkable. And just to be admitted, you know, doors opened to an incredible, incredible diversity of experiences and lives. And, and you know, sometimes you'd run across things that you're just, oh, dear, you know, this is, somebody has just never thought that they don't need to live in this way or whatever. And, you know, they might say it and you'd say, well, yes, one needs to make sure that somebody else knows about this and can help. <laughs> well, I guess when would that pop up? I remember going to an apartment building one day, and it was a sunny afternoon, and it was not a not a well-to-do building by any means. It was a sunny afternoon, and everybody was sitting outside in beat-up lawn chairs, and some of them lived in the apartment building, and some of them didn't live anywhere. And what emerged was that they were afraid to be inside because the electrical box was shorting out. And so I thought, well, I can't really waste any time. I mean, I need to be in touch with the, with the fire marshal, and... Mm-hmm. so on. And fortunately, that did happen. But I mean, that was not something that really I took on as, as any kind of a candidate or anything. It was just another family later on. You know, I was surprised there within, you know, inside town, they were still living with an outhouse, things like that. Wow. You don't really expect. And until you're actually in somebody's, I won't say in their house, in their space, in their life, and people do admit you to their life for that couple of minutes, you don't know. You know, and to be able to tell them that, yes, there's help. I mean, people will, you know, the government will actually help you to install indoor plumbing in your house, that kind of thing, if you don't have the money and haven't had the money for the last 30, 35 years. Actually, there are a couple of households like that over the years. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And something back a bit uh, before you mentioned the unmanageable candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the difference between a manageable candidate? <laughs> I came to the conclusion that it may have been in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Later experiences with, you know, that particular campaign manager in other contexts and all the rest of it, I think it may have been almost more of a scare tactic than anything else. I mean, I'm sure that there are unmanageable candidates. I'm sure there are people who refuse to go places when they're told to go there. I'm sure there are people who refuse to listen to what they're being told about what they need to do. 
or people who are going around upsetting other people on doorsteps or whatever. But I don't think I was one of those. I'm guessing that that would be the unmanageable right. candidate. Oh, yeah, all the stories. <laughs> I actually frequently had to campaign by myself, which is not the norm. And in looking back on it, I would say, well, I, I don't mind, but probably was not wise of a campaign manager to send, you know, a relatively young female candidate out into the woods and say, well, we'll see you again at six o'clock. <laughs> but <laughs> we got through it. So when you are elected, tell me about what it's like becoming an MLA for the first time. Hmm. Well, you know, there was an invitation to a victory party downtown. So the first experience that you have is, you know, a big celebration hall. And, you know, people are being brought in, in this case, out of the rain. On election night? On election night, yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, you have met fellow candidates, but that can be all of the people that you have met. And, you know, it's a huge, there's a lot of excitement around it. And people want to want to talk and so on and find out who you are and why you're there. Or at least, you know, for a minute they do anyway. And so there's that. Fairly quickly, the leader will have apportioned critic responsibilities to the members of the party. And if there are two members, then they're going to be working very, very hard. And if there's a larger body, then, you know, they'll have a couple of portfolios each, which was the situation when I arrived. And from there on in, you, you're reading. Basically, you're reading a lot. And you quickly, you look, look to meet with groups of people who will be sort of the voices of important bodies within your critic portfolio. In my case, I started with municipal affairs and human rights. And so what that meant was getting to the UNSM meetings and so on and finding out just what the municipalities were thinking. And I remain convinced that the relationship between the province and the municipalities is one of the most intricate and important that goes on in the province. So, you know, I'm glad to have had some insight before going on into that because every member of the legislature does deal with their municipal counterparts. And quite frankly, nothing can happen without the goodwill of municipal counterparts. It just, it's dead in the water. So if not, I didn't have the cooperation of the the counterpart I had defeated and who continued to represent the area. But for the most part, and, and people do... Anyway, that's, that's a side issue, but I think, you know, probably the overlapping of municipal, provincial, and federal representation is, I would say, a bit of a relic of the past that ought to go. How so? Like, what, what's wrong with it? Well, I have always been of the theory, and unfortunately, you know, I think you'd say, because my own experience sort of strengthened that, that it is difficult for somebody to sit at one level of government while a candidate for another level of government because they may or may not have partisan affiliations where they are sitting, but they do have partisan affiliations where they're aspiring to sit. Mm -hmm. And so they're sort of the servant of two masters at that point. And also because the three levels of government are frequently working, they have different interests. And so if you've got somebody who is working at one level of government and hoping to get into another level of government, they're going to want to be working at that level where they aren't at this point. And so they're, again, they're, repre- they're not necessarily, I mean, this is my belief anyway, not necessarily able to best do this. 
I've always thought that, I mean, there's the whole thing about the advantages of incumbency, but I've always been a really strong believer, and this may have been part of the experience that I had, was that I've always been a really strong believer that we have three different sets of elections because we've got three different levels of government. And that if you were to say that, and a lot of people don't agree with me on this, I would say, but if you were to say that you are a a Purple Party member at the municipal level, that shouldn't automatically mean that you're a Purple Party member provincially and federally. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a voter, I think somebody could be fantastic at getting all the potholes fixed pronto. I wouldn't necessarily say that they are the best person to handle foreign policy and defense matters. So, But when you do have this kind of climbing effect, you get people who are all purple all the way. And it doesn't allow for questions, and it doesn't allow for a lot of nuance. I mean, I think people would say, oh, but the values are always the same. But, you know, values are one thing, but a lot of different policies can come out of the same values. Mm -hmm. And I as an elector, would like to think that I am able to look at the policies at each level and say, okay, this is what I would hope for. And so as a member of the legislature, I was inclined to say, I'm going to just keep my eyes on my job, which is a provincial job. And that's what I'm going to do. I've heard people say, since the federal election and with the upcoming election in Newfoundland, Mm -hmm. it looks like it's possible that you know, we have only liberal MPs and we very soon may have only liberal premiers mm-hmm. and yeah. the risk that that poses for for having that criticism between mm-hmm. and just open and candid dialogue between the premiers and public yeah. about what's happening at the federal level. Yeah, we've seen a similar thing in the western provinces in recent years where we've had only conservative premiers and a conservative prime minister and I would imagine that the dialogue was similar. But because, that's very interesting, though, because, you know, people say we are all of one vertically integrated family. You're right. I think that probably does limit the possible dialogue. Also depends on having a strong opposition. And, you know, if you have a reasonable number of members in opposition, then presumably they can do something. Mm -hmm. I think maybe the concern is that we're part of a tide. (laughs) (laughs) A storm surge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of opposition, I guess, so when you were elected in 2003, Mm -hmm. you went into opposition. Can you talk a bit about what the experience was like in the legislature itself as a member of the opposition? The wonderful thing about being an MLA is the amount of information. That, that's what I loved. Like, the wonderful thing. That's the wonderful thing. Yeah, that's, that's what right. I just loved because you you have access to so much information. You really do. And the ability to explore things in real detail. Not sure if I could still tell you all about it, but I mean, I could have told you a great deal about the seal hunt, you know, from both sides and mm-hmm. so on. So you have people coming in and talking natural resources. But opposition, the chance to ask questions. And again, this, this varies with house leaders. I mean, my... My opposition experience came in two stages, and I'm not completely sure why, whether it was a house leader thing or whatever, but at a certain point, my experience changed, rather, which would have been about 2006. But one of the great things about being in opposition is, at least theoretically, the ability to create and research and ask questions, and you have to get answers. You have to get answers, and Lord knows there are times when it would be really good to have answers about some of these things. I was later environment critic, and 
there were many mysteries, and there are many mysteries, but, you know, I was very glad to be able to ask these questions, and, you know, it is obligatory that they will be answered. Was that the case then, more so than it is now? Because I know I'm just watching the legislature in the past Mm -hmm. week and hearing the Premier questioned about the Andrew Younger case, and, you know, he's being asked very direct questions, and this is just this example. No, no. And then giving an answer, which is his, his talking point answer, but everybody who's watching, including the Premier himself, I'm sure, yeah. realizes that he's not actually answering the question. Was it more... Th- well, there has always been some of that. Okay. One of my favorite, favorite examples of this is quite simply the uh, uh, an environment natural resources critic who answered one of my colleagues' questions about the coral forests, and he kept on talking about logging, and he obviously had never heard the word coral in her question. <laughs> he just kept- <laughs> It was awful. Kept on talking about sawmills and logging. (laughs) She kept cheerfully talking about coral forests. But anyway, no, non-answers have always happened. But actually, again, I would say perhaps around 2006, uh, there was the 2006 election. There may have been a little bit more of a change. And that was when there began to be this thing, the government of the day, and I remember this particularly community service minister began saying that she would not discuss anything involving an individual, even if it was brought to the floor of the legislature, because it was privacy. And so even if that individual had requested their concern to be discussed on the floor of the legislature, she wouldn't do so. I remember encouraging the caucus to always get written permissions from people before their cases were brought forward. I don't know if right. I don't think they ever did do that. Because that would be a legal concern, I imagine, versus a and yet it never had PR been. Concern. No, it never had been. Huh. It was very sudden and it was very new. And people, for a long time, have sought to have their issues brought to the floor of the legislature. I mean, that's hmm. that's a good thing for people who have an apparently intractable problem. So all of a sudden, this stone wall went up. And as you say, it's spoken of as legal and privacy concerns, but nothing else changed in the world in that month or whatever. So that may have made it easier in some cases to evade answering. But there's a lot of confusion, I think, anyway, about the concept of parliamentary privilege. And, you know, what gets said on the floor of the legislature is technically immune from prosecution. You know, I mean, it's, it can be said. and so you could uh, divulge potentially something that was outside of the legislature or privacy concern, or you could yeah, reference a case with you could, same concern? You could. I mean, you probably wouldn't do that. Right. I mean, probably wouldn't do that, unless, of course, that person had, in fact, asked very specifically for that to be done. And that was what was happening in these cases. And so there's this whole shibboleth of privacy. I mean, this drives me nuts in and outside of the legislature. This whole thing about privacy, when it's not the person whose privacy is being protected. It's actually the privacy of the government agency which has interacted with that person. That's my impression anyway. You know, I mean, we saw the whole Retea Parson thing where these poor people weren't allowed to speak their daughter's name. That's, mm-hmm. That was not what that was about. Anyway, so that was a real change, and I think that that had a rather chilling effect on question period in the legislature. The questions that you were talking about just there, the Andrew Younger thing, mm-hmm. that is a set of questions that's intimately involved with the functioning 
of the executive, of the premier's office, mm-hmm. and I can see that that would always have been skated around. Okay. I suspect you would never have gotten a frank answer on that one. Mm-hmm. How would you describe, I guess, the tone of the legislature during your time in, in public office? Mm-hmm. Quality of conversation that happened there. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed question period, or at least I enjoyed it, you know, when I was asking questions <laughs> or, you know, able to answer questions. I really did enjoy that. When there is tension, when an election is approaching, when someone smells blood, it can get to be not very nice. You know, the heckling, the heckling can be bad. I will, yeah, I think it's okay to tell this story. When, again, this was 2006, just after the 2006 election, my seatmate was Percy Paris. And Percy had run in the 2003 election and had been defeated. And I sort of knew him a little bit after that. And he was my seatmate in 2006. And I can never forget, he, he began speaking. And the room was largely empty. And people began coming back into the room opposition people began coming back into the room, both both of the other parties, I'm sorry, opposition and the government. And there was a, a whispering and a heckling that really wasn't very nice. And I'd never really seen that. It was like a, a crowd circling around almost. And it was a, hey, 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 Percy, hey, hey, what have they done to you, Percy? Hey, Percy, and other things. And all of this is not audible on the microphone. And I remember that television cameras came upstairs because the media are down in the basement monitoring things, or I guess now on the main floor, monitoring things at all times. And the television cameras came in because they could see or hear that something was going on. And I actually remember seeing one of the gallery, one of the cameras wanted to come into the speaker's gallery and it was moved over to the side and so it wasn't possible to film the entire panorama of the people who were coming in. And I left the room and I came back and Percy was talking specifically about racism and racism in Nova Scotia and the House. But that was, to me, I found it difficult to even sit in the room, you know, to even share lunch with people for the couple of weeks afterwards till that had Mm. gone by. I mean, that was really bad. It wasn't question period as such but an example of the way in which the physical presence and the heckling can be can be personal and there can be times when it just goes over the edge and you just don't know when it's going to be one thing we've heard a lot of when we've interviewed female MLAs or former mm-hmm. MLAs who are female mm-hmm. uh, is the sexism in Nova Scotia politics and in the House of Assembly mm-hmm. in particular was that something you would experience as well? I don't know. I wouldn't say specifically, but I would say that there's a very masculine ethos. And as I was starting to say to you at the beginning, the football players, the hockey players have predominated. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, these are big, strong men who present well as figures of authority, you know, and leaders, I mean, physically leaders as being capable of physical authority. They also have what I didn't have and what I wish I did have, and I could have had it anyway, but women are less likely to, I think, or in my generation, which is deep experience in team sports. And what I was so amazed by, it was so neat, 
was that a lot of them seemed to really understand instinctively what it meant to act as a decoy, for a question to be a decoy, and to lead somebody over in a direction that you don't want them over there, or to act. I mean, they they really almost seemed instinctively to be able to translate translate into the choreography of the legislature what their experience as a team players had been. It was very neat, and I really deeply wish that I had that. I really, really do. Mm. It's like a political intuition of some sort. Yep, yep, yep. Like a strategy in your Yeah, team strategy. And it's the metaphor, but it's also the reality. It was really neat. As a, a female who didn't have team sport experience, I... Mm. That was hard slogging for me to figure this out. It really was mm. very hard slogging. I mean, I was inclined to think that if you have a ball, you know, it's like having a basket. You pick up the basket and you take it from point A to point B. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, apparently not. <laughs> so in retrospect, I guess I can figure that part out. <laughs> but So that part of the masculinity of it. Yes, I know there were some horrible, uh, I mean, there were some very unpleasantly sexist comments made by about other members, uh, other women, which I only heard about. I mean, I don't think most of them heard, so I knew that that existed. You know, I think it just, it's a matter of the dynamic of the house at any given time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Part of that masculine thing would be that, uh, you know, heckling and so on is mm-hmm. much more of a... I, th- I think much more of a tactic, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of putting people off their quote game. Right. And of course, an awful lot of people do talk about it as a game. They do mm-hmm. keep talking about it as a blood sport and so on. And it used to really get me when people would always ask me, "So, are you enjoying yourself?" As if that was the most important question, you know, as if it was a game or a sport or something. They, you know, right. it doesn't matter if I'm enjoying myself. I mean, it matters whether I'm doing a good job. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's probably impossible to enjoy yourself if you think you're not doing a good job. But, <laughs> but I don't know whether that is still the case, whether people still talk about it as, mm-hmm. you know, a blood sport, a game, mm-hmm. whatever. You mentioned something about kind of like your experience as an opposition member in caucus, particularly changing around 2006. Why? Yeah. Why? I don't know exactly. I guess maybe before why, like what was the change? Well, I couldn't quantify it. There was a change in House Leader, for sure. I think probably what it was, I would guess that it was probably the results of the 2006 election, which brought in quite a few more NDP members and much closer to the possibility of government. And I think they probably picked up... They used to talk about the A team and the B team. And I think probably they had decided the powers that be within the, not necessarily the caucus, but sort of the, well, I guess the leader's office would be, had sort of decided already who would be A-team and who would be B-team. And the A-team is sort of the the cabinet in waiting? They probably are, yeah, probably. So I think that would be probably what the the single quantitative change would be qualitatively. Yeah, it was just a, you know, it was no longer possible to send out press releases. I could, I, you know, I would even write them myself and I wouldn't be authorized to send them out. I know you said you were going to ask about regrets. I mean, my regret would be that I was not much less manageable. You know, I, I should have just, just sent it out on my own, these mm-hmm. things, many cases. But, you know, I didn't, so that's my problem. So. <laughs> 
and I guess at this time, around 2006, when you've all been reelected with many more, it sounds like caucus was also being consulted less about these decisions? Yes, I think so. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, yep. Change of House leaders, and, you know, I have the greatest of respect and fondness for the House leader, Frank Corbett. Mm -hmm. But that change in style may have been, who knows where it came from. When I think about it now, it would probably the fact that it was that much closer to the possibility of real government and the need to, you know, tighten the message. Jumping ahead to becoming the government, how did your experience change being a member of the opposition to being a member of the governing party in the legislature? Well, the latter phase of opposition was somewhat frustrating, and... I kind of knew where that was going, you know, what, what, the, what the structure of the coming government would be. I think it was fairly clear that I was not then and was not going to be a part of any inner circle of any kind or cabinet or anything. Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, that's just the way, way it was. As a backbencher, though, again, it depends on the personalities and concerns of ministers. I think that courtesy is important in any group, and I think it's probably more difficult to keep courtesy going in a larger group than it is in a smaller group. I would be asked to go, you know, attend something for a minister who couldn't be there, and I would get there, and then I'd be told, oh, the minister's here after all, you can go home kind of thing. And nobody would have bothered to tell me. And that happened five or six times. And that kind of got you feel pretty, you know. (laughs) It's not the kind of thing that you would likely put up with from friends and family. Yeah. But it's just literally nobody has bothered to telephone you. <laughs> and there's not a whole lot to do as a backbencher. I mean, you, you have to be there. That's about the size of it, really. Was there influence that you were able to wield as a backbencher on particular policy areas or things that were concerns that maybe you didn't have in opposition? No. No. Definitely not. I know this is public, <laughs> but, you know, the Premier and I... We didn't see eye to eye on some how some things had been managed, which I would say really, really fundamental to you know the structure of government and to essentially respect for members of the legislature as representatives. I mean, even if not as individuals, then as representatives. Mm-hmm. Looking back on your time as an MLA, what would you say were the most, I guess, challenging or critical learnings? It sounds so bitter, it really does. But I guess just realizing that courtesy isn't always reciprocated, you know, and that was a tough one. That was a tough one. You know, there were times when you really should have all been on the same team and that should have predominated, but it apparently didn't. You know, I would even find that in my own constituency that members of cabinet had been making decisions with members of other parties concerning my constituency without my involvement and that was not not great so I think that was probably the biggest challenge is realizing that and the learning curve that would have been involved would have been you know me figuring out what it took you know what I needed to do or learn and I never did figure it out really (laughs) (laughs) you heard that a lot (laughs) did you really? yeah did you? I think the general sentiment we've heard a lot is that there is no real, you know, when we say it's a project about learning 
for us and sort of sharing our findings with people who might want to become politicians. A lot of what we've heard is like, well, this is all great, but you know, it's you can prepare as much as you want, but once you get in there, it's a whole different you know set of issues than it was the last time, and mm-hmm. that there's a people say have said that you know, there's no particular career that can better prepare you for being an MLA and that there's a lot of soft skills that are hard to prepare for. I don't know if that's the same thing you're... Yeah, yeah, doing. probably. Yeah, I mean, if I'd had those skills, I'm sure that would have been a bit <laughs> different. Yeah, and that's, to me, that's saddening because I think that I'm not the only one, but, I mean, I saw... I saw a couple of other members just, I mean, you could see the trajectory of favor within the caucus, and you could see that sometimes what would have been good policy was not accepted because of where it came from, you know, the quarter that it came from. And that's too bad. It really is too bad. I have no idea whether that's typical of all places or not. I just don't know. I mean, Nova Scotia is is a small place, and people still tend to know each other and know each other's backgrounds and each other's family politics and tell stories about things that happened a long time ago. Even if they're urban, they will tell stories about things that happened, you know, back on the eastern shore or the south shore or whatever. Yeah. When it comes to changing some of these sort of elements that are were, were challenging not it sounds like the the challenge is more with the system and with the process and perhaps the culture the way you're describing it any ideas of how we change that yes <laughs> you know i think it is systemic we talk about participation in the democratic process and we talk about going out and engaging people and things and a huge number of people, children, young people, it's not that they've never stepped foot in the legislature. That's not the problem. I think the problem is that they have never participated in a group process. They've never participated in an election, per se. It's just not very much part of the culture here. I mean, people are appointed to this board, that committee, that agency. We just don't do it that way. We elect our municipal and our provincial and our federal representatives and then essentially the party you know puts in place various people to you know to fulfill these other these other mandates that in many places would be elected and i'm not saying that all of them should be elected but i'm saying that there is very little experience of the little daily things that happen you know the elected dog catcher kind of thing. Right. <laughs> Is that a good thing or not? Elected dog <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not. It's not quite that. But I. I do think that there is a real lack of experience with it at the, the lowest level and sort of the most intimate level. I mean, there are just not very many opportunities. Right. One of the things we've been asking the former MLAs we're interviewing is. If you were advising somebody who was either just become a candidate or just become an MLA on how, you know, if they could fast forward through your learnings, what would the key things you would want them to know be before stepping into a job so that perhaps they could kind of get, yeah. get the wisdom that you might have? Oh, uh, uh, I, think, I think one of the things to remember, and I'm fortunate in this one, was I always used to say it's a contract job. This is a contract. And, you know, either... The people will renew it the next time, or they won't. And 
I'm in no way entitled to it. I mean, a job is really the wrong way to describe it. I'm, I'm doing a contract right now. Don't ever, ever, ever get to the point of thinking that this is your job, this is your employment, this is your life. I really believe that bad things happen when people start thinking that way, that, you know, they have either a right or a need to remain in this position forever. I also had said to myself that I was going to sort of self-impose a term limit. You know, I didn't know exactly when it would be, but I had always said I will leave at a certain point. And because we don't do that, so the thing would be to not lose track of who you are and why you do things. Be pretty darn sure that it worries me when I meet somebody who says, I want to be a politician. You know, I don't think anybody should ever do it because of that. You know, you need to know what you want to do. Right. And you need to not forget about that. And if you don't get a chance to do that thing while you are in office, you should be prepared to do to continue doing it out of office. And I will say that being out of office, I've gone back to trying to get the things done that I was trying to do beforehand. And I know more about the nuts and bolts. And so I guess I would say, know why you want to do it. And remember that at some point, you're not going to be doing this anymore. And, you know, this is a phase of your activities. And that's it. And you're not entitled to it. And don't expect that phase to be any longer than the exact term that you have been elected to. I mean, I th this is a danger that governments have fallen into as well. They think they have an eight-year mandate. There's no such thing as an eight-year mandate. This just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And you need to do the work, you know, that you need to do within that time. But take advantage of it. Learn all you can. Yeah, and remember that it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. One of the MLA's interviews last week, I think it was Eleanor Nori, who, who said that you know, there are certain people who get into the job and, you know, they're quite humble at the beginning, and then at some point they realize that God put them there. <laughs> <laughs> Person that could do the job. Yeah. And she said, that's, yeah. That's the dangerous point. Yeah. 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 And as soon as she said, I thought, I could recognize a few people that. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think so. What would you say you're most proud of during your time as an MLA? I think that I, you know, maintain good relationships with all of my constituents. You know, people would come to me, particularly when I was first elected the first time, and they'd say, Oh, I voted for you. And, you know, I always said, I do not want to know how you voted. You know, I'm here to represent you. I don't care whether you voted for me or not. You know, what can I do for you? I think that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. And I was absolutely insistent on that. I don't think anyone could say that I ever failed to represent them on the grounds of political partisanship. I think I did my best for everybody. I wasn't always successful. But I did what I was capable of, and I don't think I ever, ever shut anyone down because of their, you know, their history or even if they'd been rude to me or whatever. You know, just, so that's what I'm the most proud of. That was Michelle Raymond, former NDP MLA for the writing of Halifax Atlantic. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Offscript podcast. We encourage you, as always, to consider becoming a supporter of the podcast. You can do that at offscript.ca and click on the donate button. 
We're also encouraging you to go to Apple Podcasts and review this podcast there so that more people who have interests similar to yours can find it. If you're not sure how to do that, stick around after the music fades out and we'll tell you how. It's uh, a couple of steps, so we're just going to talk you through it. Step one, go to Google and search for on the record, off script in Apple Podcasts. It should be the first link that comes up, and you can click on that. That'll take you to the on the record, off script page by Springtide on Apple Podcasts. Click on view in iTunes, and then click to rate if you just want to give it a star rating. And if you want to give us a real hand, Click write a review. That'll pull up the podcast in your iTunes app right under the name of the podcast. Tell us what you like about it, what you'd like us to do more of. And of course, we read them all and it means a lot to us. And the main reason we ask you to do that is because it helps other people find the podcast.